Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello. Welcome to the History Hit World Wars podcast, a podcast dedicated to that turbulent period in history between 1914 and 1945. I'm James Rogers, and in this episode, we're talking about the crucible of our modern world. Because historian, writer, and researcher Charles Emerson thinks that the crucible of our modern world and our modern world wars was not the 1960s, but the tumultuous years at the end of the First World War, and all those years that followed around that period. This was when communism and fascism became mainstream movements. It was when the borders of the Middle East and Eastern Europe were drawn up and fought over, So in this discussion, he and Dan talk about how a shattered world came to terms with the aftermath of the First World War. Charles, thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you, Dan. Big book, you know, where the modern world sprang from. Why not? Yes, indeed. It's um, yeah, possibly a lot bigger than I intended it to be, but there we go. Um, why do you identify 1917? Whenever, this year, 1919, 2019, everyone's talking about Versailles, everyone's talking about the post-war settlement, everyone's talking about the Middle East carve-up. Why do you identify 1917 as, the, as actually the important year? Because for me, really, 1917 is when it's not possible to turn the clock back. So you've had the first three years of the First World War, 1914, 15, 16, and then into 1917. It's not, it, that's the point where I think things, I think things really, really change. When you have, on the one hand, you have the two revolutions in Russia. On the other hand, you have the United States entering the war. And actually, more than that, you have European societies which are thoroughly exhausted. And these new ideas start to emerge uh, in Europe. And I think also increasingly in America after that date. Which means that it's just not possible to turn the clock back to how the world was before the war. Back to 1913, as it were. So you think if... Germany had sued for peace at the beginning of night, or after the Battle of Somme in '16. You think Britain and France could have sort of cobbled together a, a, a pre-war sort of political and economic settlement? I think that might have been possible. Yes, I mean, I th- it's after 1917. Increasingly, in the letters and diaries and in uh, in political correspondence, although there's, 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 there are several pushes for peace in that year because societies are exhausted and really all all, all of society is mobilised in, into the war effort at that time. Um, I think at that time, it, it simply you have these these revolutionary ideas emerging in Russia and elsewhere, and it's basically it's not possible to put the genie back into the bottle. It's not possible to return to the, the Europe of empires which existed beforehand. Well, let's talk about some of those ideas. Obviously, you mentioned the Russian one. Let's talk about sort of communism, I guess, first. Yeah. Um, how, how that, I mean, that does in this period go from being a fringe niche to yes. dominating 
one of the world's largest empires. Well, one of the one of the characters I look at. I mean, I followed these these characters through the through the trajectory of the years from 1917 to 1924, and actually one of my favourite characters in all kinds of ways, although a very very imperfect individual, is is Vladimir Lenin. And when you find Vladimir Lenin in spring 1917, before the first Russian Revolution, um, you know he's living in Zurich. He occasionally gets together um, like-minded socialist and anarchist individuals in a pub in Zurich and basically harangues them and lectures them about the upcoming world revolution. But he himself is a little bit doubtful about whether that will, that will really happen. So he is a totally marginal figure. You know, he, he spends all his time in the library. He writes these furious notes to his rather small band of supporters around Europe. Um, you know, the gang is totally busted in Russia itself. And the prospects of world revolution, although he talks about world revolution, um, you know, don't frankly seem that high. And yet, by the end of that year, so only you know, less than 12 months later, the Bolsheviks are in power in Russia. And that's one of the big, big transformations of, well, of course, of that, of that year. And then communism is, is beset by, by conflict and by challenges for years after that. But it's, it's launched. Well, let's just pursue that story a little bit, because it is just extraordinary. How does Lenin go on that journey through your book? to uh, dominating an empire the size of the Russian Empire? Well, he essentially... Um, so in, in, in 1917, when the, when, the, when, the, when the February Revolution happens, it's, he's, 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 uh, into, his lunch is interrupted, and somebody comes in with this news, and he basically can't really believe it. And then, immediately, he's trying to figure out, how on earth do I get back to Russia, having been in exile for some years now? How do I get back to Russia so I can be at the centre of things, so I can make sure that um, those who are left are not going to screw this up because you see this is very much a tremendous opportunity which can't be screwed up. And so immediately he has all these crackpot schemes for how to get back to Russia uh, and eventually arrives on this notion of, um, of persuading the Germans, um, so Russia's enemy in the First World War, persuading the Germans to provide a train to take him through to the Baltic and thence through the Baltic, Baltic Sea to, uh, to Russia. And incredibly... This, this scheme actually comes off, it works. And the reason the Germans support that is because they think, well, Lenin's a troublemaker. If we can send a troublemaker into the midst of our enemy, then that's a, that's a good thing. Uh, and so eventually he, 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 ends, he, ends, he ends back in, in, in Russia. But even then, um, the, Bolsheviks are, the Bolsheviks are marginal. This is not their revolution which has happened. And it takes a whole series of other events uh, in the course of 1917 to eventually lead to the opportunity for the Bolsheviks to actually take power uh, towards the end of that year uh, in, in Russia. And then, of course, having spoken about revolution for years and years and years and years, Lenin the revolutionary, Lenin the fugitive, Lenin the exile, has to put these things into some kind of action. Uh, and almost immediately things start, to go, things start to go very wrong. And you get, a, you get a distancing between the ideology of the communist revolution, what it's supposed to be, and the actuality, what it turns out to be, which is, of course, a, a very different and much darker thing. Do you, when you're charting these, um, these events, do you see uh, foresight, do you see genius, or do you just see contingency and luck and chaos? <laughs> I see humans. Uh, I see humans with, in the case of somebody like Vladimir Lenin, with you know, very fixed ideas about the way the world should be, and uh, a great notion that there is that uh, there is inevitability to revolution, there is inevitability to how, how things will develop, how history will develop, history with a capital H. And yet, when they find themselves thrown into this, this crucible, into the, this maelstrom of events, they have to grapple with the fact that it never works out as they expect, and there is a huge amount of contingency and chance in it. To take one example with, with Lenin, 
um, Alan Dulles, who years later became the head of the CIA and who at this time was a young American diplomat in, uh, in Switzerland, um, he received a phone call in 1917 from a, this rather agitated Russian asking that they meet um, because he wanted to get American support for his idea to go back to, to Russia. And Alan Dulles had no idea who this, the person was on the other end of the line. And, uh, and Dulles said, well, you know, I'm terribly sorry, it's a Sunday, I've got a tennis date, and uh, so I can't meet you. Uh, and it turned out the person on the other end of the line was, so Alan Dulles said, was Vladimir Lenin. So essentially, in 1917, you have a potential meeting between a man who later became the head of the, the, the CIA and the head of world communism. And that meeting, whatever that would have brought about, didn't happen because somebody had a tennis date. And I think that the, 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 the role of contingency and chance and missed meetings is, is something which I find fascinating, alongside the very human fact of people grappling with the, of the world being not the way they expect it to be. And Miss Bullets, I mean, Lenin was lucky to escape with his life in this period as well. He was very lucky to escape with his life because he was under constant um, assassination threat. Uh, and indeed, there were, there, were, there were attempts on his life which were you know, almost, uh, almost, almost hit their mark. Um, in 1918, he was, he was, he was shot and, and for a while it was very much, very much touch and go. You get a sense of just how crisis-ridden um, the early, early Bolshevik Russia was that they, you know, there wasn't even a doctor on hand immediately um, to deal with, um, with, with, uh, with Lenin's wounds. Um, he had to be treated by a, by a, a Bolshevik, uh, an old Bolshevik who, whose wife was a nurse. And you know, really everything could have, everything could have gone in a, in a very, very different direction at that point. I think in a way that's the, that's, perhaps that's the story of history as I see it in any case, always. Did the people living in the diaries and letters that you've read the people living through these years feel like they were in some sort of churning crucible, a different world would emerge from it? I mean, to some extent, of course, people always think that they're living through, you know, the most amazing, the best of times, the worst of times. That's, that's par for the course. Um, but yes, I do think there was a real sense of um, things having changed, of a future being, of being uncertain. There's a um, there's a, a quote from from Sigmund Freud, um, who's another one of the characters who I followed through this these very important years, and Sigmund Freud having been actually an Austro becoming very briefly an Austro-Hungarian patriot in 1914 and sort of cheering um, the soldiers going into war and talking about how he would give his libido um, for the Austro-Hungarian Empire, which of course is the most generous thing any Freudian can possibly do is to give his libido, um, and then in 1918 totally disenchanted with the war effort uh, and him saying but him saying actually there's something very exciting about a world in which the 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 old is dead but the new has not yet replaced it and I think that's that's quite a common sense you get in letters and diaries across these these years there is there is a tremendous excitement and energy to it which has been released by um, which is released by war and revolution and the question of uncertainty what will happen next of course, can be a tremendous motivating factor, as it was uh, on, on, on all sides, the political divide. What else? We, obviously, communism is a, springs uh, from this period. Uh, what, uh, well, communism, in terms of communist um, governments, springs from this period. What else, what, what, what else do you, can, can you, can you ch chart the development of? Well, I think very often there's a tendency to look at these big characters, you know, Freud, Einstein, Hitler... 
uh, Lenin and to chart their rise biographically as if they were sort of almost existed, um, you know, as if, as if in effect they were the centre of the universe. And I think similarly with some of these ideologies such as communism, um, you know, people spend years writing about communism and sometimes you can forget the, the extraordinary fluidity of the environment and the context in which these ideologies and these individuals um, were operating. So what I try to do in the book is not just talk about politics, but also talk about, uh, but also talk about cultural movements as well. And one of those is, is surrealism, um, which is one of the, the most important, I think, um, cultural movements at the beginning of the, of the 20th century. And that springs from André Breton, uh, who's French, and who at this time is, in 1917, he's actually working in a, in a neurological hospital in Paris, and he's observing shell-shocked patients, shell-shocked soldiers coming back from the front and finds a kind of beauty and a kind of poetry uh, in, the, in, in the way in which they attempt to express themselves. And that sense of um, shortening the gap or reducing the gap between mental thought and expression, so sort of not mediated in any way by consciousness, for example, or by social convention, um, that then becomes one of the found, one of the touchstones of of the surrealist movement, and I think you can connect that, of course, also to the movement of of, of Sigmund Freud in, in psychoanalysis, uh, and indeed you can you can also make a link there, I think, to, to various political movements. So what? And, and so yeah, talk a bit more about surrealism. It's a, it's a it's a artistic movement, but how is it interacting with? People like what? What? Are, what? Are, what are these citizens of these sort of shattered societies seeing? Do you think when they when they're engaging with surrealism? Well, I think surrealism is 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 in some degree it's a, it's a product of this of this shattering, uh, where people are prepared to um, people are prepared to think about how you how you reconnect to these these sort of instincts and and, and undercurrents uh, in society, and it's that it's that it's that unlocking of energy. Which I think is important for for how surrealism emerges, but it's also interesting, I think, politically. And you know, surrealism has surrealism and modernism and these other artistic movements. They have their. You know, if you go back to to Bolshevik Russia, you have this idea that a new society be, can be created in after the the Russian Revolution in the in the early nineteen twenties. And this isn't just about. Um, it's not just about changing labor relations. Uh, it's also about uh, a new way of living. Uh, and the idea of a new way of living, a new way of being, new new kinds of relationships between men and women, um, not just equality, but moving really beyond that, these are these are very very exciting social transformative ideas, which in previous years would have not really appeared possible, but now because of the way in which all the cards, if you like, have been have been thrown up in the air. Suddenly, it does appear as if there is a there is there is a sense of possibility in the air as well. It's almost like the the, the war was just searing events have burnt away this sort of tore the moorings of our pre-war Edwardian genteel society. I mean, I thought you can go too far down that road. Well, you maybe, but you know, there's 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 a great quote of also of, of F. Scott Fitzgerald, who was one of the great um, chroniclers of this from the from the American side, uh, although he was never actually in the war himself. But he describes uh, this is a world in which. A new generation has has grown up, and all all gods are dead, all faiths in man are shaken. Basically, all the or look at W. B. Yeats talking about the center cannot hold. There is this there is this idea that um, that the center has collapsed, and that from that some people view some people see 
disaster and barbarity and and a, a world in a, a world in a tailspin, if you like. But I think also there 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 is an element of excitement and novelty and and creativity. And it's that's not just on the political left. If you look at somebody like Benito Mussolini, who's another one of the the characters who I I, I followed through the, through these years and his rise as the fascist leader of Italy. Um, here's somebody who you know they they pick and choose from from economics, from culture, from politics, to try and formulate a, a what they would view as a, a new political, a new way of doing politics and society. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. So, yeah, the, the experience of war and of societal collapse, it feels like people are embracing new art, music, ways of having sex, interacting with each yes. other, politics. In all those... Uh, let me. This is obviously a very difficult uh, adjective in a way, but it, there's a sort of not crude, a sort of a rawness to it because you, you look at the politics of fascism and communism after the war, and it, and it's it feels a long way from the more you know, the more genteel politics uh, of 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 pre-war Western Europe. I think that's true, and if you if you if you believe that there's actually a, there's actually a possibility of genuinely changing the world, uh, and you feel that it's it's right and it's needed. Um, because there have been a series of, again, if you take if you take the example of fascism, or Italian fascism, there is this idea that the that the front soldiers have been betrayed. Um, they've been betrayed by the by the politicians in Rome, and that's one of the animating uh, motivations of, of 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 Italian fascism. And again, the idea of the na- these narratives of betrayal, which are very very strong, also create their own kind of energy and forward movement and and momentum. Um, because they suggest that uh, they suggest that not only can a new world be created, um, but it's but it's important and necessary to do so. so um, I always think with Italian fascism, it, 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 it's understandable that after the unimaginable horrors that you experience in the First World War, uh, and if you look like the Thirty Years' War, status quo ante bellum, and it's just mm. simply unacceptable for people to go for what the the enormity of what we've been through means that there must be enormous consequences from it. Yes, I think that's right. 
I think that's I think that, that's absolutely right. And but it's not just about the, I mean, in the case of Italy, it's partly about the the, the way in which Italy joined the, the the war in the first place, where essentially the Italians were persuaded to join with the promise of various bits of land, various bits of land, Austria, territorial yeah. aggrandizement, and then by the end of the war. Um, that was viewed as being, you know, that's that's the old way of doing diplomacy. That's, you know, we're not going to have that anymore. We've got this Wilsonian ideal, and the Wilsonian ideal is about self-determination. It's about principles. It's about rights. It's not about, you know, drawing a line on a map and saying, well, that's mine and that's yours. It's supposed to be a scientific way of doing of doing diplomacy, diplomacy and doing peace. And of course, one of the one of the great disappointments of of these years is that that Wilson and Wilson is, is another one of the characters who I, I follow through this period. Um, that 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 Wilsonian dream, that Wilsonian ideal, um, just doesn't just doesn't work out. In a way, I think Wilson is 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 he's almost an analog to um, to Vladimir Lenin in a way, in that he has a very clear idea of the way in which the world should be, uh, and uh, and just it just doesn't bear any relation to the way the way in which the world actually turns out to be, and that's you know disappointing. Um, what about in Britain? What what do you identify? Uh, as as going on in term, in terms of the rise of the Labour Party, like well, where does Britain fit into this picture? Well, one of the things I've been quite keen to do with, with the book is is sort of decenter um, or recenter rather um, our discussion of these of these these crucial years. Generally, I think in the UK we think about you know, we think about the First World War. We think about these very very clear bookmark years, 1914, 1918. We've got a date in mind. We've got a time in mind for the end. And that's, of course, 11 a.m. on the 11th of November, 1918. Um, but the reality is that if you were anywhere else, pretty much, or many other places, certainly across Europe, then the war did not end in 1918. It continued in, in there were revolutions, there were civil wars, and other kinds of and other kind other kinds of conflicts. So Britain is is somewhat at the edges of this of the narratives that I'm 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 describing, except in one very important respect. Which is, of course, um, the, the the Irish War of Independence, the Anglo-Irish War, uh, and the and the and the Irish the Irish Civil War, and this is, of course, something which is happening, which is a it, which is a, a a it's part of the long tail, if you like, of the First World War, um, but I don't think it features very much in the way that British people now think about um, think about those years. I think 1918 is still still dominant, and what was happening in Ireland, although it was you know, just across the Irish Sea, you have this. Horrible! Um, you, you know, you've got you've got policemen being killed. You've got you've got extrajudicial reprisals. You've got the black and tans. All these kinds of elements, which are of course tremendously important in Ireland now, in contemporary Ireland, and in the UK, we're focused on 1914 to 1918. So the UK is is a is a is a is a somewhat um, somewhat marginal uh, to this to this story. But but America. What about America? What do you, what do you see? How do you see that these years of, of setting as having set America on a, on a new path? Well, in several different ways. One of the one of the um, one of the issues I address in, the, in this book is the, the return of of soldiers from um, from Europe, black soldiers, African American soldiers um, from the from the from the First World War. So when when the United States joins the war, um, there are many in, in the in the whites in the South who don't like the idea of African Americans having military training which would then um, and then being and then being sent off to fight in Europe. In fact what happens is that African Americans do go off and fight in the war. Uh, and and on their return there is a um, there is a sense that you know, things have to change, that that people have to be given their dues. They they fought for the United States and they 
they need to demand their rights. So that's that's one set of narratives which I which I talk about in the book. But then there's also this American fear of importing revolution from Europe. Um, there are many Americans, of course, who are opposed to the United States joining the war in the first place. In fact, Woodrow Wilson won his 1916 election victory, saying, of course, we'll never join Europe's war. Um, but after, particularly after the Russian Revolution and this sense that Europe is, um, you know, Europe, Europe is physically sick with the flu, it's politically ill, it's the source of um, discord and disharmony. There's basically a fear of, of revolution occurring in the United States. And so in, in the course of 1919, you get um, the US Red Scare, uh, where there's various, various, measure, various measures are taken to try and prevent revolution happening here. You know, we, we can't let it happen here. And eventually, that leads to um, the tightening of immigration laws. So whereas throughout the end of the 19th century and beginning of the 20th century, the United States, you know, famous Statue of Liberty, was accepting huge numbers of, of migrants from Europe, uh, there's a real reaction against that uh, after and in consequence of um, the experience of the Great War and the collapse of Europe as perceived from, from, from the American side of the Atlantic. Just talking to you is reminding me that you know, people talk about the 1960s, this kind of um, ground zero for so much of what we think of as modern in the world. But in fact, this, this period surely is, is essential to understand the trajectory of the 20th century and, and, uh, and the development of all sorts of things, whether it's you know, enfranchisement of women, of, of racial equality, I think it's I think it's absolutely essential, which is why, why I was it was I was so keen so keen to write about it. You know, you have of course the origins of, of, of fascism and and communism, which is after all those are the two twin ideologies which um, propel the next the next ten or twenty years of of, of European history, um, which are which are even bloodier, of course. Um, but also, as you say, you have um, women's enfranchisement uh, in the United Kingdom and in the United States. Um, uh, and you also have this. You also have a, 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 the beginnings of a quite fundamental change in in, in race relations, um, and not just in Europe and in America, as I've described, but also uh, but also around the world. This, th- there's a there's a, a, a Chinese intellectual Yan Fu, who had been a great advocate of uh, or a great believer in Western civilization, European civilization, and essentially that, that Asian countries should follow Europe's lead. Uh, and after the war, that that notion, having seen the conflict that Europe had gone through, uh, the notion is that the future is no longer lit up by the West. And that, I think, is a fundamental shift, which then plays out through decolonization over the following, you know, I think 70 it's a, years. It's a funny, I know you don't want to talk about Britain too much, and I understand it, but I think as a Brit, it's an interesting book to read, because I often think that the First World War had sort of shattered... Uh, the, it was the end of British hegemony, imperial hegemony, and, and, a, and, a, and a whole British way of organising itself socially, economically. But there was quite a successful kind of um, counter... You know, the, the, the band-aids were placed all over it. And that's why 1945 comes as a big surprise. But it shouldn't really be a big surprise, given what happened 1916, 17, 18 and onwards. Well, I mean, a band-aid is, is the right way of... Dis- I mean, one of the ironies of the, of, the, of, the, of the 1920s is that this is when the British Empire reaches its... Yes, re- reaches technically... Its, re- te- technically yeah. reaches its maximum extent... Um, but it's a dead man walking. But it, it's well, it's not quite a dead man walking. But I, one, another one of the characters I follow through is is Winston Churchill, uh, and you, and you see him in yeah yes he's he's, he's quite familiar I think, and uh, and he is um, he's essentially he's essentially in a firefighting operation from an imperialist perspective, 
uh, in the in the early 1920s because there are there is civil conflict all across the British Empire. Uh, it's not possible to rely on uh, ideas of of somehow sort of British civilizational superiority, if that was ever believed in, um, in order to in order to in order to rule. Uh, and there is a sense that this is this is all spread very 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 thin indeed. And so it really is the end, I think, the beginning of the end of the of the imperial and colonial era. And you've got domestic audiences, probably influenced by these revolutions that are going elsewhere in the kind of language, saying actually we we know, we don't want to uh, curtail our own welfare, our own our own access to health and housing to pay for a battleship, you know, to the, so that we've got more battleships than the next two naval powers put together, whatever it might be. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's also true, and that that of course connects to um, connects to the rise of um, the right to the rise of the Labour Party in the United Kingdom, uh, and it also connects to this this notion that actually um, the world of the nineteenth century, the world that produced the First World War, is a world of of business interests of uh, of capitalist powers, and that there is a there is there is an alternative, and the alternative is socialism, and for those who are on the far left, um, they can see that, they can try and believe that they can see that really forming and taking shape in the Soviet Union. Of course, in later years, they learn that, um, that this is not at all the, the dreamland. But there's a, there's, a, um, there's a visit taken, there's a visit of a number of um, socialists and trades unions, tra- trades unionists, British socialists and trades unionists um, to Soviet Russia in, I think it's 19... 19- 20 and already there you see on the one hand um, they go to they go to Soviet Russia and there's a tremendous excitement when they when they get across the border you know they start singing the international and you know this is it's all really happening um, but two or three weeks in Soviet Russia is enough to convince them that well it's you know it's a good experiment and it's very very good that it's happening over there but not quite sure it work out over here uh, so you you have a, a a growing a growing estrangement there as well, you know. Will the will the will the will the world revolution really ever happen? Well, you know, let it happen in Soviet Russia, and then here we'll see. Amazing. Thank you very much, Charles Emerson. The book is called Crucible. Crucible: The Long End of the Great War and the Birth of the New World. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you, Dan. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This Mother's Day, treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their advanced eye care duo brightens and firms skin around your eyes, while the Golden Glow Body Trio nourishes and smooths skin all over. Go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM for 10% off your first order site-wide. 
And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland, further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.